Tom Silkwood discovered somebody's key in their motorcycle. Uh, he said, oh, he found it. Yeah, it's a cool one. Yeah, so we just want to be careful, that's all. Okay. Uh, it's, great to, uh, it's great to have some special guests here this morning. Uh, we're very thankful John and Charlotte are back and are uh, leading worship this morning back from their uh, few months back in the States. We're also very thankful that Yasan came all the way from Germany uh, to just play the drums this morning in church. So that's awesome. And I, tell, you know, I, I keep telling you, she can do this every Sunday. Just you know, get on playing, come, play the drums, go home. It's easy. No sweat. Uh, we're glad he's back. Uh, sadly, he's le- he is leaving today. So that's, that's sad, but we're glad he's here. Um, this morning we are uh, continuing our trip through the Gospel of John. And uh, we'll be in John chapter 3. Uh, our message this morning is called... We lost it. It's called, it's called Saved by Works. And uh, I know many of you think that we're not saved by works, but I'm here to tell you this morning we are saved by works. And uh, maybe after we're going to have like a fist fight about if we're saved by works or not. Uh, you know, I hope that gets your attention, that phrase, um, which is the point, to get your attention, saved by works. Um, are we saved by works or are we saved by faith? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that I believe we are saved by works. Okay, anybody ready to fight yet? Anybody ready to start throwing things? Hopefully not. Um, John chapter 3, the story of uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, the most often quoted and recited passage of Scripture, John 3.16. It's dangerous to preach on something familiar. It's like suicidal to preach on John 3.16 because everybody knows John 3.16. Um, what I want to talk about is that salvation is a, is a matter of works, but it's not our works. It is God's amazing work that saves us. Okay? And it is something we appropriate by faith. Ultimately, though, it is a work. It is an incredible work of God. And as I studied and looked through this passage this week, I was just impressed at what salvation is. And really what a wonderful, incredible, and incredible thing it is. Uh, that God does this work to save us. And in John chapter 3, as Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he really explains and kind of unfolds what has to take place for us to get into heaven, for us to be saved, for us to have new life. Uh, It was words and categories that Nicodemus had never heard of or dreamed of. Uh, And he greatly misunderstood what was involved in salvation. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of us. Uh, The and, and in fact, probably we will, well, certainly we will never really fully grasp all that salvation is until we step into heaven and see fully uh, all that God did and all that He worked to bring us to Himself. So, with that thought, let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Lord God, we just uh, stand in awe at the universe You have created know that you are a God whose creative ability is beyond our wildest imagination, certainly beyond what we can grasp or conceive. 
Father, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, we would become impressed that the work of salvation is no less miraculous or profound. That what you have done in us to make us your children is an incredible work of creation uh, and something that we should cherish and value and really see our own life in the light of that work. So we pray that you would help us. Father, we pray that your spirit would just take over the service Minister to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just a, a, a uh, what's the word, a disclaimer, a disclaimer. You know, I don't, I don't just read the Bible. You know, when I, when I come up with this stuff week by week, somebody asked me, you know, where do you get this stuff? I don't just get, this is not, a lot of this is not my own stuff. Uh, and I must give credit where credit is due. And I'm really indebted um, to the work of D.A. Carson. If you uh, can ever run across commentaries by him, he's an excellent scholar, um, gives very well-balanced views on scripture. If you're ever looking for good commentaries, he's only written a few, but I would highly recommend uh, D.A. Carson. Uh, you know, I'm indebted to him. I don't make this stuff up, okay? And the Bible's there, the scripture's there, but you know, please don't think I'm like all that smart. I'm really not. I just read. It's all, and that's good. Um, I'm glad to live, I live in a day when there are books. It's interesting, Jesus comes as, um, in many ways, a great reformer. And in John, we've seen, uh, he comes to the wedding, and he takes these water pots that had been used for ceremonial cleansing, and he fills them with wine. And it's a great picture of Jesus undoing and really refitting the, uh, the customs and traditions of Israel uh, and filling them with new wine, the new wine of his purpose, his glory, his joy. Uh, then he goes to the temple, goes crazy in church, casts out the animals and the sheep and the livestock, uh, and he shows that he is he's reinventing redemption, that no longer will people be saved or redeemed by animal sacrifices, that he would be the ultimate supreme sacrifice. And so he's showing that he's doing away with that. He's doing away with the temple and it's, function as a, as a building, and he's making a new holy temple based on his own sacrifice. Uh, we come to John chapter 3, and Jesus uh, meets up with a rabbi. And you know, if I had some good, like, Catholic rabbi jokes, this would be a good time to insert them. You know, there was like a, a rabbi, a Catholic, and a, you know... I don't have a joke, though, so just laugh. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, Jesus, in this story, really shows how he is undoing and refitting, remaking new the whole rabbinic teaching of Judaism. And uh, his dialogue with Nicodemus serves, first of all, to show Nicodemus he, he desperately needs to get saved. But it also goes to show that all, of, all that the Jews taught was short. That it fell short and it was not complete. Now, it wasn't that it was an error, it wasn't that it was an unbiblical, but it certainly fell short of God's ultimate truth and purpose. And Jesus comes to show that he is the completion of that truth. He comes to fulfill and um, make that truth final. So let's look at the story of Nicodemus. It's also interesting that as Jesus does this, um, we get a picture of Jesus as an evangelist. Uh, you may not think of Jesus as being an evangelist. I guess I never thought of him that way before. But certainly Jesus here is doing what an evangelist does. He's going to a lost person and he's trying to convince him of his need to receive Christ. Uh, it's interesting, it doesn't really go all that well. If you shared Christ and thought you did it you know, so well and you argued the points and you, you made it so clear and the people walk away going, well, I just don't believe it. 
Well, don't feel bad. Jesus had the same uh, happen to him a lot. And certainly it happened with Nicodemus. Later in the Gospel, we see Nicodemus a couple more times in slightly more favorable light. But it's unclear or uncertain if, if Nicodemus ever becomes a true disciple. Uh, he certainly becomes a respected admirer of Jesus, but that he believes his message and sells himself out to it, there's no evidence of that. Uh, we hope and pray he did. Uh, know that when you share Christ, when you present the gospel, uh, you know, no matter how effective you are, a lot depends on how it's received and what they do with it. And if Jesus couldn't save everybody, guess what? You know, we won't either. Um, but we are to be faithful in sowing the seed. So let's read starting in verse 1. After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. What do you mean? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, Are you a respected rabbi, a teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, I am telling you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe us. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about things that happen here on earth, how can you possibly believe if I tell you what is going on in heaven? For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. There is, no, there is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. But those who do not trust him have already been judged, judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Their judgment is based on this fact. The light from heaven came into the world, but they loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. They hate the light because they want to sin in the darkness. They stay away from the light for fear of their sin, that it will be exposed and they will be punished. But those who do what is right come to the light gladly so everyone can see that what they are doing is what God wants. Uh, first of all, we have Nicodemus coming. And uh, Nicodemus is coming in the dark. Uh, and throughout the Gospel of John, darkness is always symbolic. That doesn't mean he didn't come at night. He, he did. But John points that out for uh, a specific reason. And there's some, things, some, some significant things to note about Nicodemus. First of all, it says he was a Pharisee. Uh, that meant that he was the most conservative and really the most biblical of, Jew, of Jews. 
chances are if you and I uh, lived in Jesus' day, most of us would identify ourselves with the camp of the Pharisees. They took the Bible literally. They sought hard to obey it. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in heaven. Uh, Nicodemus represents a very conservative guy who, who genuinely in his heart was pursuing truth and was pursuing what he understood of the Bible to follow it. Uh, it also says, in addition to being a Pharisee, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men. Uh, the minority were Pharisees. And so for Nicodemus to achieve this, this position as the highest ruling body in Israel meant that this guy was just not a slouch. This guy was not some flunky. He was sharp. He had, you know, probably several PhDs after his name. He'd probably written a few books. Uh, you know, been written and published in several periodicals, Christianity Today, stuff like that. Uh, he, he was somebody. He was significant. He was well-educated. He was smart. He was articulate. He was probably very well-known as a teacher. He probably had a significant ministry in the temple, uh, teaching regularly, and probably had a very large following of people who would have subscribed to his teaching. You know, so on a scale of people, this guy is ministering at a national level. Like, you know, there's those people who, who minister whose names everybody recognizes. Like, my name is not even close. You know, I'm way down in the small fry category. But there's those people who, who everybody knows. Um, Nicodemus is one of those people that everybody would have known his name. He was important. He was well-respected. Okay? Um, in spite of that, it's very clear that he was a seeker. And he comes and finds out Jesus because he is very curious about Jesus. Uh, you know, this came right on the heels of Jesus just turning the whole temple upside down. We don't know if it's the same day or some later day. But certainly, Nicodemus was very aware of what Jesus had done. And uh, Nicodemus wants to find out, you know, what is with this guy? What's going on with him? And he was a seeker, and it says that he uh, comes to Jesus to seek out information, and uh, Nicodemus admits that Jesus' signs are winsome. He says, we behold the works that you've done, the signs that you've done. Certainly, you must have come from God. Now, that doesn't mean that Nicodemus believed he was the Messiah. Uh, he certainly fell well short of that in his understanding and his belief. But he at least believed that Jesus was empowered and blessed by God. And he acknowledged that. So he comes as a seeker, he comes as one, as a witness to the signs. Uh, interestingly, this is a, an important point that even though Nicodemus sees the signs, uh, they aren't saving for him. Uh, a lot of times people think, you know, if we could just do miracles, look at how many people would get saved. Uh, sometimes miracles can open people's heart and mind but people will never come to the truth of the gospel by miracles alone. Uh, Nicodemus is a good indicator of that, as well as many other people who witnessed Jesus' miracles. They saw him raising the dead, healing people, casting out demons. Uh, that in itself was not enough to convince people of the full truth. And so uh, Nicodemus comes not fully convinced with lots of questions, and he's a seeker. Um, but finally, he is clearly in the dark. Uh, he doesn't really have a clue about what's going on. And as Jesus begins this dialogue with him, it becomes clear very quickly how clueless this guy is. Uh, he had been very well schooled and trained in Jewish thought and thinking. Uh, 
Um, and he really didn't understand or believe that he was in need of being sa- saved, of saving. Uh, he certainly had no clue that he was confused in his doctrine or theology. Uh, he certainly was the last person who would have said, you know, Jesus, I don't have this figured out. Can you please, please explain to me how I get to heaven? Okay, here's a guy that would have been convinced 100% of his salvation. This is a guy that would have said with absolute confidence, when I die, I'm going to heaven. I couldn't do otherwise because I'm a Jew, I am a Pharisee. I mean, look at what position I've gained. And yet the truth is, he was in the dark. He was walking and living in complete spiritual darkness. Uh, If you're a Christian, if you have grown up in church, if you um, have been to Bible school, this had to just terrify us. You know, that you could do all that and still not have a clue. Okay? And I think it's a fair thing for every person to say, God, uh, you know, I'm like preaching and teaching and like people think I'm a really good Christian. Am I? Am I really saved? It's always a good question to ask. You don't want to get to heaven and find out. I forgot to ask that question and I missed it. And that's about what Nicodemus was on the verge of. Missing salvation completely. Um... It's interesting as we, as we think about Jesus' efforts to evangelize. Nicodemus represents a lot of the people that we will try to share Christ with. Uh, interestingly, in the next chapter, we'll see Jesus sharing Christ with uh, a Samaritan woman. It takes a very different ev- evangelistic approach. And in, in many ways has much more effect and is much easier to reach this, this uh, the Samaritan woman who had a messed up life. Some of the most difficult people to reach with the gospel are not the hardcore sinners, but the really, really good people. And uh, Jesus is confronted with a guy who is really too good to be saved. And it's very enlightening, and we can learn a lot as um, as we try to share Christ with people who genuinely think they're good, uh, who believe that, you know, they're a good person, and why, why, how could God judge them? And uh, most of the people I've ever shared Christ with are in this category. In fact, I was in prison one time, not personally, I was visiting, and uh, I remember sharing with this guy who was convicted for murder, sharing the gospel with him, and uh, like most guys in prison, his line was, well, you know, I didn't really kill the guy, he just ran into my knife, you know, kind of thing. Uh, he was convinced he was innocent. And the truth is, most people believe they are good people and don't see their need for salvation. And Jesus understands that the first step in anybody coming to the truth, anybody coming to the light, is they must first of all be convinced they're in the darkness. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't waste a lot of time debating with Nicodemus where Nicodemus wants to argue. I think Nicodemus came with some good questions that he had debated before about theology. And uh, it's interesting that he starts with this whole issue of science. And the Pharisees, and the, you know, if you've been with me through the Gospel of John so far, every time the Pharisees pop up, they've got these questions about science. Like, these guys are fixated on this whole sign thing. And uh, every time they're going, well, you know, what, what about the science? Where's the science? Give me a sign. And I think Nicodemus came ready to argue and debate signs, debate, debate things that were in his categories. Well, Jesus won't talk to him at that level. And he begins talking to Nicodemus at a level uh, that just really unnerves him and unravels him. 
You want to be an effective evangelist, you've got to learn how to unravel people. Uh, a lot of times what people want to do is they want to suck you into debating things that they think they understand and know. Uh, and if you meet them at that level, you'll just go around and around in circles forever. Anybody ever done that? You know, and you'll get nowhere. Take evolution. You know, well, if, you know, God's real, but what about evolution? Well, you know, they think they know what this is all about, and if you try to debate with them on that level, you just go in circles. Another great one is, well, if God is so good and loving, why is there evil in the world? Well, I believe there's very good answers to that, but you will never tell a blind person who's living in darkness the answer to that question. And if you debate them on those issues, you'll go around and around in circles and get nowhere. Instead, what you need to do is step out of those spheres that they know and understand and step into realms that they don't. Uh, one that works good for me, and it depends on the person and the context, but one that's worked well for me is to say, you know, okay, so you got evolution and the problem of evil all figure, figured out. That's good. I congratulate you. You should write a book. But here's the real question. Are you happy? Uh, do you know that you are loved? Uh, those are categories that most people who think they have lots of answers can't answer. Uh, and, and we need to get them to the point where they realize they are in darkness. Here's the picture. If you're, with, if you're in a totally black room, totally dark room, and you know where the exit door is, and you stumble into somebody who's finding in this dark room, trying to find their way out, trying to find the door, and you say to them, well, the door's over there, and you point. You point really hard. It's over there. It's, right, it's there. Okay? Is it going to do any good? No. Because they can't see you. And trying to show people uh, and argue these, debate, these issues to people who are in darkness is just like that. You're trying to point them to a door and they can't even see. The first step is to say, by the way, did you know you're stumbling around in, in, in total darkness? You need to grab my hand and follow me so I can lead you out of the building. So that's the first step. And that's what Jesus did. He says, Nicodemus, you don't realize how in utter darkness you are. And if you want to get out of the situation, the first step is to acknowledge what, what blindness, what spiritual darkness you were in, and then grab hold of me and follow me and I will lead you out. So that's the approach that Jesus takes. And in so doing, he really unfolds for, for us this incredible work of, of new creation. Um, so Nicodemus comes and he says, you know, well, we know you're from God, you know, you're the spiritual person, we're impressed by your signs and your miracles. And Jesus doesn't even answer his question, he bypasses the whole thing and he goes right to the issue and he says, Nicodemus, you're, you're not going to heaven, and you can't go to heaven. You'll never see heaven unless you get born again. Now, for Nicodemus, this was uh, mind-boggling. And what it really spoke of was his need for a total new work of God in his life. A total new work of recreation by God in his life. Uh, he had never heard this before. And he responds to Jesus really with a bit of irony and a tremendous amount of sarcasm. Oh yeah, I'm like 65 years old. You want me to crawl back in my mom's womb and be born again? Ha! Okay? It's not that Nicodemus believed that was what Jesus was talking about. But he, um, he really was saying to Jesus, you're talking nonsense. You are talking absolute nonsense. This doesn't make sense. What do you mean be born again? What do you mean I need this new work of creation in my life? Uh, Jesus says it again. He says, uh, the truth is, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You can't go into heaven 
unless you are born of water and of the Spirit. He says, you've got to be born again. Um, the word that's used there for again, born again, can have two meanings in the Greek. It can mean either born from above, or it can mean be born a second time. Uh, it's very likely that when Jesus originally used the word, he intended born from above. Because that's really where our new birth comes from. It's not that we get born a second time. It's not that we crawl back into our mom's womb and get born again. It's that we are born from above. We need a spiritual remaking of our whole person. Uh, it's interesting, though, Nicodemus clearly took it as being born a second time. Of course, in the end, it's the same. If God remakes you, it requires being re- remade again anew. Um, and it speaks really of this incredible new birth, a new life, a new kind of existence that we didn't possess before. Um, Nicodemus believed that he was born as a Jew and that being born as a Jew was all that was required uh, and to walk in the traditions and customs of Judaism to be saved. And Jesus says to him clearly, that's not enough. You need a total rework of God in your life. And Nicodemus is going, this, this is crazy stuff. I've never heard this before. What is this new kind of life? Um, you know, the, the miracle of life is a wonderful thing. And by the way, um, yesterday, if you know Brennan and Karina, they had a baby boy, um, Ike, right? Ike, and he's healthy. I think he's like seven pounds, healthy, uh, doing well. And, you know, new birth is an amazing thing. New life, human life, is really a miracle. And uh, the fact that we're all here living and breathing and, uh, you know, some of you are actually awake, it's a good thing. Uh, some of you are not, you need to drink more coffee. It's my cure. Uh, we, we have life, and it's a wonderful gift of God. It's a miracle. And to hold a new precious life that's come into the world, that God has produced this life, it's a spectacular thing. And really, life is incredible. Um, spiritual life, this new life that God creates is no less wonderful and amazing. Uh, The hard thing for us is that we can't see it. We can hold a little newborn baby, we can hold a new child, we can feel and sense the throb of life in them. Uh, They let out an ear-piercing scream, we go, yep, they're alive, and they're hungry. And uh, this new little being interacts with the world comes into the world and responds to it and has a relationship with the things around it and learns and grows. Uh, And it's a wonderful thing, an amazing thing. Well, spiritual life is much like that. But it's being born into a, not this physical world, but being born into a spiritual realm where we now can have relationship, where we can interact, where we can respond to a whole spiritual realm of existence that we were dead and closed off to before. Uh, A whole realm of the heavenlies that we can't see with our eyes, we can never experience with this physical body in this life. But when we are made new, given new life in the Spirit, all of a sudden that whole universe is open to us. And we become uh, enabled to interact and to dwell in that and to respond to it, to that world. because it's separate, and, and, and we, need to, we need to define some terms here. You know, the world talks, especially nowadays, it's become very popular to talk about being spiritual. And we hear about people being, oh, she's such a spiritual person. Or I had such a spiritual experience. 
And in the world, what that, what that typically means is this, is that, you know, I was somehow deeply moved by something. I was off hiking through the forest and the sun was shining through the trees and, you know, it was quiet and the birds were chirping and, and I felt this peace and I went and I hugged a tree and there was this warmth between me and the tree and, oh, I had a spiritual encounter, right? And what they mean by that is they were moved by something. Something in them was stirred and they felt something physically. They felt the peace or calmness. Or maybe they listened to some music or watched some movie and something spoke to them and moved them deeply. And they had some emotional encounter or something that touched their heart. Interestingly, what, what I would define as spiritual would be quite opposite of that. In fact, I would say that those experiences are largely unspiritual simply because they're mostly experienced in the physical. Okay, it's a person who has had an emotional experience in this body. They have had their senses... Um, stirred by something beautiful, by hearing something beautiful, by seeing something beautiful. And in the physical realm, they've had an experience. And they call that spiritual. But the reality is that spiritual means this. It means not physical. Okay, there's the physical world, and there is a spiritual world that is separate outside of it. Okay, those two things are separate. Now certainly, a spiritual person can be moved by beautiful things. Uh, and we can call that a moving experience, and certainly it can touch us spiritually. But by definition, spiritual is not physical. Uh, spiritual is spiritual. And a lot of Christians confuse this, and they think, well, you know, I got saved, and I didn't feel anything. Well, it's spiritual, and it's not necessarily something you will feel. It's not, it's not necessarily something that is emotional. It is spiritual. And it opens you up to a whole realm that is spiritual, but that realm, by definition, is something we cannot access with our physical body. If we could see heaven with our own eyes, we wouldn't need spiritual birth. If we could hear God with these physical ears, we wouldn't need spiritual birth. We need spiritual birth because this body is unable to comprehend and grasp God. Sure, we can grasp the universe, we can grasp what He has made, but it's not sufficient to see God on its own. So we need this physical making. We need spiritualized. We need spiritual ears. We need a new heart that can be moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Now you say, well, does that mean that any emotional experience is like not of God? Well, not true. As God remakes us, as He renews us and makes our life spiritual, it does have a ripple effect on our physical body. In fact, Jesus describes it this way. He says, um, Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can give life from above. So don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain the spiritual life, how people are born in the Spirit. Uh, it's like that. Uh, we, we can't see the wind itself. And we can see the winds, we can hear the wind as it whistles through the trees. We can see it as it moves the branches. But you can't actually see the wind. Now, some really smart people will go, well, if there was a dust storm, okay, I got you, we'll give you that one. But generally speaking, you can't see the wind. It's invisible. But it does, it does move things. Well, the same thing is true in our spiritual life. Once we have spiritual life, it does move us in our bodies. It does move us physically. 
But that's a totally different thing than a person who is moved physically and thinks that's spiritual. You get the distinction. And basically Jesus says, just as we can't understand the operation of the wind, in the same way we really can't understand the operation of the Spirit within us. Because it is separate from our physical existence. Uh, about a year ago, I think it was Time Magazine did an amazing uh, article on the brain. And uh, they decided that they could, because they have all this equipment now that can like scan our brain and tell what parts of our brain are working and, and uh, they, can, they can just see how our brain functions. So they thought they could use this equipment to evaluate people's spirituality. And they did this whole research on worship and on prayer and, and they had people pray and they put these little electrodes all over, you know. And uh, they decided by observing the brain that there really is no such thing as the spiritual. Because when we pray, when we worship, we do these things, it's all just in the brain and there's no spiritual explanation for it. Well, I would say to that article, duh, of course you can't see it. It's spiritual. That's the whole point. It is not physical. I don't care how many electrodes or probes or scans you put on a person, you cannot measure with the apparatus of this world what is spiritual. It operates outside of the realm of human existence in this body. And there are things that happen to us spiritually in a realm that science can never measure. And of course, science says if you can't measure it, it can't exist. Uh, But I would say, if you can't measure it, it can't exist in the physical world but that means that there must be another world in operation, a spiritual realm. Um, Jesus also says that we must be born of, of water and the Spirit. Um, and he really talks about this in terms of a work of spiritual formation. We need to be made new. We need the spiritual life. Uh, this, this passage has been uh, greatly debated what this means, uh, born of water and the Spirit. Uh, many people have interpreted this to mean you're born by baptism and by the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some people have translated this to mean not Christian baptism, believer baptism, but baptism as in John's baptism. Uh, There's all kinds of theories. Well, to understand what this means, you've got to ask one simple question. What would it have meant to Nicodemus? Okay, Nicodemus, as he's hearing this, what would he have understood these words to mean? Um, And in fact, Jesus later really chides Nicodemus for not getting it. Uh, Jesus says, okay, rabbi, teacher of Israel, why don't you get this? And so Jesus implies that he should have understood this. So whatever it meant, it had to mean something in the context of Judaism and in the context of the Old Testament. Most likely, uh, Nicodemus would have understood it Uh, from passages like Ezekiel, and there's a number of these in the Old Testament, passages where water and the Spirit are seen together. And they all have the same general meaning, and they're captured best in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27, where Ezekiel writes, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Uh, I really think that's what Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand. 
that he was talking about the washing of cleansing and the renewal in a spiritual level. That, that Nicodemus should have understood that uh, God's ultimate fulfillment in the life of a person was complete renewal and cleansing spiritually from the inside out. And of course, as we see in the next couple of verses, this washing comes about through the blood of Christ, through his atoning sacrifice. Um, so he talks about life in the spirit. He talks about the my- mystery of this life, the spiritual existence that God creates. Um, you know, when we look at ourselves, it really is unfortunate that when we see ourselves in the mirror, we see so much of our physical existence and so little of our spiritual. Um, and especially as you get older, the whole physical thing just gets kind of depressing. You know, my hair is going, it's getting gray, it's getting old and wrinkled, and, you know, uh, it's not always, you know, the best. It's too bad we can't see what our existence in life is spiritually. That there is within us an existence, a substance, a thing that's real, that is spiritual. Right now, in this age, we've we've got to receive it and accept it by faith. We've got to claim by faith that God is doing this work in us. Uh, The point is this, that we are much more than what we see. When we look around at this room, we are so much more than what appears on the surface. We are spiritually reborn as God's children. And that is an incredible thing. And it is, it is a work of God that required more effort than what it took for him to create the universe. Think about that. He spoke the universe into existence. But he had to leave heaven and come here to do the work to make you spiritually. Uh, everything I have ever seen that God has made has a wonder and a beauty in it. Uh, yesterday we were up in a village up in Ma'ai, and uh, it was freezing cold up there. It was great. And at night, I mean, the sky was just clear. And you could see the stars. And I'm from Colorado. I, I miss seeing just the stars in the sky. And it was wonderful. I got to just look at the stars, and you could see the Milky Way and these beautiful stars. And just the wonder of what God has created. Uh, in the mountains, in, in just the beauty around us, God, when he creates stuff, he doesn't make junk, and he's really good at what he does. If he put that much into this universe that will perish and fade away, imagine the work that he is doing in you. Imagine the beauty and wonder and splendor of what you are made new in Christ as a spiritual being. And someday, the fullness of that will be revealed. And for all eternity, we will exist as these glorious, radiant, spiritual beings made new by God. That's what we are in him. And that's what Jesus is urging Nicodemus to. This new life that God wants to create in him. Um, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And he just flat out says, you know, Jesus, what do you mean? What, do you, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, this, so, and this is what I said, you know, you want to unravel people. Well, Jesus was very good at it. He totally unraveled. I mean, here's a guy who was supposed to have all this theology, all these answers. You know, he'd written books. And he was like a well-respected teacher. And he was going, Jesus, I, I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And Jesus says, you know, what? You're a respected teacher? You're a rabbi in Israel? And you don't understand these things. Uh, he says, what I speak to you I know because I come from heaven. Uh, this is a work 
Not only is it a spiritual work, not only is it a work of God renewing us, but it is a work that is beyond human invention. Uh, one of the greatest, for me, one of the greatest, um, I guess, signs that Christianity is real is that nobody in their right mind would come up with this. Okay, here's a guy who was very religious, very spiritual. He had great theology. And not only did he not come up with it, he couldn't even understand it. Okay, nobody in their right mind would say this. Nobody in their right mind would come up with a spiritual system that has at its center such craziness. Uh, what, what's craziest of all about it is that at the heart of this message is, is not me. When you look at every other religion, it's all about what I can do to get to God. The effort I can put into it to make myself worthy and fit for God or for future life or to keep the gods from like throwing rocks at me. Uh, in this system, it's totally different. God has asked us to do nothing. He has done the work instead. And what's craziest of all is that he's done it, as we'll see in a moment, as a work of of undeserved grace and love. That God would do this at his own expense. No human being in their right mind would come up with this. Nobody could come up with something so crazy. Nicodemus couldn't even believe it. He couldn't even buy it when somebody else made it up. Okay? Uh, only God could come up with something this wonderful and this really upside down to human thinking. Um, and so, so Jesus says, you know, you can't invent this. It comes from heaven. He says, I tell you the things that I have because I came from heaven. This is a scheme that resides in heavenly places. And it doesn't make sense on this earth. As, as Paul said, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. It's crazy and it doesn't make sense. And really, at the heart of all the craziness is the absurdity of God's love. Uh, it is a work of God's love. It's a work of his renewing. It's a spiritual work. It's a work of regeneration. But at the heart of it, it is a work begun because of God's great love and compassion. Uh, we know these verses. He says... Um, you know, for God so loved the world, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The verses before that he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, must I, the son of man, be lifted up so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Uh, this comes from Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, it was one of those times when Israel was being just flat out spoiled and nasty and ugly. And here God had redeemed them out of, out of, Israel, out of Egypt, had taken them through the Red Sea, had given them the manna, had given them water, was leading them through the desert, was taking them to the promised land. And uh, the people of Israel were so thankful and so filled with joy, they just mumbled and complained all the time. They said, God, what are you doing to us out here in the wilderness? You just brought us out here. We're just going to die. And Basically, they were telling God he was a jerk and an idiot and to just leave him alone. And, uh, you know, if people were to treat us that way, uh, if they were to treat me that way, I would respond by saying, fine, just go away then. But instead, God in his grace doesn't do that. Uh, he sends, first of all, poisonous snakes along to get their attention, uh, which would get my attention. 
and uh, they start getting bit by these poisonous snakes and they start dying, which is kind of a bad thing. And uh, they, they realize their foolishness, they realize they need for God, and they repent and they go to Moses and they say, please pray for us. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze, a, a, an image of a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and lift it up where everybody can see it. And when they get bit, if they look at that pole, they'll be healed. What an amazing picture of the cross and of grace. And Jesus says, in the same way, I am surrounded by this rebellious people who hate me. This rebellious people who in the end did kill Jesus in their hatred of the Son of God. But he says, here's the deal. I have been lifted up onto that pole and for all those who will look at the cross, in spite of our ugliness and sin, there will be forgiveness. There will be eternal life. And he says, because God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Uh, when, when John uses the word world throughout the Gospel of John, he means the world as a wicked, sinful place. A people who are in rebellion to God. God didn't love a world as a good, happy, fun-loving place where people were mostly good and just needed a little bit of saving. He, he loved the world that hated him. He loved a world that stood in absolute rebellion and opposition to him. He loved the world that when he sent his most precious son, killed him because they hated him. God loved that world so much. And it was out of his deep love for us that he sent Jesus to die for us. Uh, there's so much in this verse, and we, you know, we could do a whole sermon. I'm not going to. God loved the world so much, he gave his only son. Uh, as I said, when God created the universe, it really didn't cost him anything. You know, God did not have to go into his savings account to buy the materials to, buy to build the universe. Okay? He spoke it into existence from nothing. It really didn't cost God one penny of his own to build everything you see. But it cost him everything to save us. It cost him the greatest, dearest price he could possibly pay to redeem us when he sent his son in our place. And he did it because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son... Um, Finally, it's a work of his love, of his boundless love. Finally, it is, a, it is a work that requires faith to do its job. Um, by the way, just a, um, a side note, most Bibles, you know, have, if you have a red letter edition, it's red all the way to verse 21, right? Um, most likely... In the original Greek, it was not read after about verse 14. Of course, it wasn't really read anywhere in the Greek, you know. And there's no quotation marks. Probably Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus ends at verse 15. Uh, and I won't go into all the reasons why. There's some, some reasons why scholars believe that probably John picks up the narrative there. Um, and he, he says this. If it is John, he says... You know, there is, there is no judgment awaiting those who trust Jesus. But those who do not trust him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. And their judgment is based on this fact. 
The light from heaven came into the world, but they loved darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. Um, Jesus came as the light into the world. The gospel is the light that can change people, but the reality is people love darkness more than light. It's why bringing people to Christ is so difficult, because they're in darkness. And Nicodemus is a great picture of this. A man who comes to Jesus in darkness, total darkness. As religious as and smart as he was, he was living in darkness. And it says that men uh, shun the light because it exposes them. It exposes their evil deeds. Um, Here's the question. Here's this religious guy, this respected leader in Israel, this Pharisee, it says that he didn't, he didn't like the light, he loved the darkness because his deeds were evil. So like, was like Nicodemus some kind of secret you know, pedophile? Or was like some serial like Bible teacher by day, serial killer by night? You know, put on his mask and go out like... Um, what was his great evil deed? Uh, was he you know, extorting money from the temple to run his own gambling operation on the side? Um, what does it mean that, you know, here's this, this guy who was this Pharisee, this religious leader, this very respected person, that his deeds were so evil, he was such a terrible person inside, that he hated the light. Well, we could look at evil that way, and certainly those things are evil. And certainly we have lots of examples of preachers in our day who have done terrible wicked things, drugs, you know, child pornography, you know, immorality, extortion, embezzling. You know, there's plenty of examples of that. But is that really what, what, what he's talking about here? I don't think so. I think, I think Nicodemus was a genuinely good person. I think he came to Jesus with every confidence that there was no evil in his life. That he was a good person. So how could John or Jesus say this? You know, they hated the light because their, e- their deeds were so evil. What was so evil about Nicodemus' deeds? Well, I think the evil was this. That all of his goodness, all of his good deeds, all of the things he did were done by himself apart from God. You think, well, that doesn't sound so evil. You know, a lot of people ask, and I don't want to get into the debate, only God knows if like Mother Teresa was saved. But supposing Mother Teresa was this very good person who didn't really believe in Jesus. I'm not saying, I don't know anything about her, so I'm not saying that she did or didn't. But suppose that she did all those good deeds but was not a Christian. The hypothetical people, you know, question that people always ask is, how could God send her to hell if that were true? How could God judge a person who did so much good in helping others if she didn't really profess Jesus as Savior? Well, the deal is this. If she did all those good things apart from God, then there's only one reason why she did them. To benefit herself to make herself look good and for her own benefit and glory. It really is what's at the heart that makes every good deed apart from God so evil. Is if we do those good things not for God's glory, then we do them only for our own glory. And that's an evil thing. Because it's selfish. And it's done without love. Uh, Jesus says to the rich young ruler when he came, same thing, this guy thought he was good, he thought he kept the commandments, thought he did all the right things. And Jesus says, you know, he says, what must I do to go to heaven? He says, well, just keep the commandments. And he says, I've done that since I was a childhood perfectly. 
And Jesus says, well then, it should be no problem for you to give away everything that you own and give it to the poor as, a, as an act of love and compassion. He says, I can't do that. I can't do that. Because he was doing what he was doing out of his own goodness, not out of God's, for his own glory, to make him own, his own, himself look good. That's the most wicked and evil thing there is. That's the greatest evil there is, to live life apart from faith in God. And so that's why Jesus goes on to say, or John goes on to say, they hate the light because they, they want to sin in the darkness. They stay away from the light for fear their sins will be exposed and they will be punished. But those who do what is right come to the light gladly so everyone can see that they are doing what God wants. Well, what is the deed we do that God wants? Well, quite simply, it's just living by faith. Uh, And all the good deeds we produce as a gift of faith. Uh, That's the good deed. That's the good gift that we can do when we trust God and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the incredible and wonderful gift of salvation, a work that you have done by your own hand. And Father, we just ask that you would, um, right now in this moment, help us see uh, clearly what we are in Christ. And Father, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning who's trying to get to heaven, trying to earn your love by their goodness, Lord, help us to realize what an evil thing that is. Because it, it denies your glory. It denies that the source of all true goodness is from you and not from us. That the origin of love and grace is your being, not ours. And Lord, help us to realize that we are in darkness, but by faith to realize that there is a glimmer of light. And by faith to trust that you will guide us if we'll just admit how lost we really are. And that you are leading us out of the darkness into light. Lord, help us to realize by faith how incredible your love for us is uh, that would spare no expense to purchase our salvation. Uh, Father, help us to see the work that you are doing in us, a work that is largely invisible to the physical world, but is huge in the spiritual world. And Lord, help us to walk more and more by our life in the Spirit instead of our life in this flesh. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.